0: Welcome to Dead and Married, where we talk your favorite horror films and maybe some you've never heard of. I'm your host, Ashley.
1: And I'm Travis.
0: And today we, is our season finale, and we are talking night clock not Clyde Barker. <laughs> now I'm getting all confused. Tony Randall's 1987 sequel to Hellra Hellraiser. Hellbound to Hellraiser too. God, I'll get this out in a fucking minute. <laughs> it was
1: 1988.
0: 1988, what did I say?
1: 1987.
0: Oh, that's because you were asking me a minute ago, Fat is sibling yeah. born in 88. (laughs) Okay, I'll let you talk now since I'm flubbing it all
1: up. (laughs) Uh, This is your series.
0: It is my series. This is your favorite series
1: ever. Is it? Yes. It is.
0: It is my favorite series ever. I mean, I know that that's... Well, I don't know. I I think I can't ever decide what my favorite franchise is because I will go through all of them and then I'll be like, this is my favorite franchise. No, this is my favorite one. No, this is my favorite one. Like, I think I've said that about Friday the 13th multiple times um but no i i think um i think at my heart of hearts even though this series in particular probably has more misses than hits it's probably still ultimately my favorite one
1: yeah this is the one you definitely go back to i think most often
0: yes and the thing is even with the misses i can still watch those as guilty pleasures like even though i know they're shit like for the most part except with the exception of like two or three movies that w Bradley's not in, I will still watch them anyway just because I love the lore, I love the, the characters, I love that world um, so yeah, ultimately I, I guess yeah, it's my favorite
1: Alright, well, half of people who do reviews share your opinion <laughs> It's a fifty percent on Rotten Tomatoes and a six point four out of ten on IMDb. Fifty okay. percent's um, a little higher than I honestly expected it to be because if you look at some like your YouTube reviews, I, I don't know. I don't know if they just say they it's not their favorite because it's the popular thing to do, or maybe it is. They would feel guilty if they said we're out
0: that, there. We're out there. Yeah. There's just not enough of us that review
1: them. If people would th- look at them like them. they're really weird, if they said, "Oh yeah, I really like this movie," I know, think like, what so. kind of freak are you?
0: I think that there there might be some truth to that. You know what? I don't care. I, I tell people all the time that I, I love these movies so much, and if that makes me weird or says something about me, I honestly don't
1: care. Hey, I know exactly what kind of freak you are, <laughs> and I accept you.
0: I have gone on record on this show and talked about what a freak I am, so I don't <laughs> think we're breaking any news to anybody.
1: Probably not. <laughs> so, first impression seeing this film?
0: Oh my gosh! You know, I was going back and I was I was thinking about my history of this franchise, and I don't know if. I I've, I've probably talked about it ad nauseum but this film in particular like I, I think I remember it was one that I had rented in high school because I came across the box <laughs> the VHS in a, the video rental store that uh, one of my friends worked in and I saw that and it was just this artwork of pinhead and deep throat and the caption was time to play and I remember thinking that that image was so powerful and so scary and I had already kind of had assorted history with this assorted uh, history i had already kind of had a little bit of a backstory with this series that I had never watched any of them because the very first time I was ever made aware of the series was at a sleepover um, that I was having with a, a next door neighbor friend and I forget what movie we rented at the time obviously it wasn't anything too memorable but I do remember that the trailers we were watching on the VHS. Just included um, Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth, and I had never seen anything like that before. I had never seen Pinhead up to that point, and I remember just being terrified out of my gourd seeing what, the, what this thing was, and I mean, I actually remember se- hearing the quote, Jesus Christ, not quite. Like, that stuck with me my entire life, so it made an impression, and then after that, do you remember Pogs?
1: I do. Because
0: you're as old as I am.
1: I, I do remember those. My,
0: my brothers had like this series. It was like baby versions of, of um, horror icons or whatever. And I remember there was like a baby pinhead one that they had. And I was even creeped out by that. Um, going to places like bowling alleys and seeing um, stickers of different guys like that. And it, he would just keep popping up at random moments throughout my life. And I would keep just getting scared anytime I saw him until, yeah, finally finally in high school when i rented the original i was like okay i'm going to i'm going to get over this fear i'm going to i'm going to see what this is about and then yeah it pretty much came my life's obsession as far as film is concerned uh, but having said that i think the first time i watched part 2 was with you really yes uh, when we first moved in together and moved away um i remember you and i renting it and me just being you know wide-eyed and and just you know, my innocence being ruined as we spoke. And you just sitting there with me, like, what the fuck are do you have me watching right now? And our and at the time you were still quote unquote a good Christian boy. So I remember just being literally obsessed from them from the moment I watched part two. And I wanted to I used to buy um Hit Parader magazine all the time because it was Big Metalhead. And at the back of the magazines they was always they would always have ads for like different t-shirts and stuff and i remember there was a hellraiser t-shirt for sale and i wanted it so bad and it said demon to some angels angels to others and you were like no no you're not buying that i'm not having that in my house
1: (laughs) oh how things have
0: changed (laughs) yeah how the turns of tables
1: (laughs) we've got a black christmas tree now (laughs)
0: So, anyway, a long-winded story to say it it Very. made quite the impression.
1: It's amazing, and I know we've talked about it before, how the box art on those old VHS tapes could get to you, like when you were a kid walking around the video store. Yeah. Um, the one for the first Hellraiser scared the shit out of me. Mm-hmm. And it's just Pinhead holding the box. Right. But there was something about that that just, like, I would go wide around the horror mile. <laughs>
0: I did that too, um,
1: yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think it's a Nightmare on Elm Street film that's got the, the pram.
0: I think that's Dream Child, yeah.
1: It, that's it. It's just a pram. Yeah. And it, I don't think that's even a great movie, is it, out of the series?
0: I mean, I'm I'm an apologist for it, but it's not typically a favorite, but no.
1: there, that one bothered me. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why. Um, and Pumpkinhead. You remember the the mm-hmm. Pumpkinhead box art?
0: Uh, no, not not particularly. Yeah,
1: I think it was just him on it, but it's crazy, right? Yeah. And now you look at that stuff and you're like, yeah.
0: Oh, the Pet yeah, Cemetery really, box really matter, used but. to freak me out so bad because it was just that shot of Pascal's face and I remember being like,
2: oh my God.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But it, it was crazy. I don't know when you're a kid and I, I I'm not Randy Marsh, but <laughs> do you ever kind of miss going to the video store? I
0: do. I do do so much. You could, like, the thing I think I missed the most about it was that you would have some places, like, for us it was Hastings, um, where you didn't just have the video rental. You also could buy all kinds of nerdy merch there and stuff and music. And it was so great. And I miss, you know, on a lazy Saturday, like, let's get out of the house and go do some shit. And now you have to travel anywhere to be able to get any physical media. Yeah. It sucks.
1: But it was... I don't know. I always thought it was cool to go over there. Shit, even Blockbuster. Yeah. And just kind of wander through. I mean, it was just a way to kill time. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes you'd find a movie that you, like, I haven't seen that before. but Right. Um. Yeah, it was good. And I, I don't feel like you get the same, maybe the same level of excitement to see a movie. Like, if you're just scrolling through it on Voodoo to decide, hey, do I want right. to rent this or not? Um. I think it's because, like, the trailer's there. Everything's there. Mm-hmm. There's a description, all of it. And mm-hmm. so it kind of takes some of the mystery away. Right. So, and you've got ratings posted there and, you know, when you're renting a movie, Movie, there was no rating. Like, you had no idea what kind of movie you were getting.
0: Yeah, and and that art, that <laughs> box art is really a lost art now, because I feel like all box art is the same now. You have a group of young people making a shape, like a, tr- like a flying V or something with the monster behind them or whatever in the background. And I feel like all art is like that now. So are
1: you saying that Scream ruined box art for everyone?
0: I mean, maybe. I- I'm serious, because you used to have some really cool inventive stuff even if the movie itself was shit they usually turned out some fantastic art for it
1: yeah it's kind of like um well like album art Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. on cds um those were small discs that had music (laughs) on them for those of you who don't know what those were Um, but those were kind of the same way. Yeah. And those things could be scary too. I remember the, it was a uh, oh, Cannibal it was the cover Corpse. for Cannibal Corpse. Oh God. Um, and I think Iron Maiden had one too. Uh, yeah, Iron Maiden like, for sure. Oh, <laughs> you got to worship the devil to listen to that.
0: Yeah. Even <laughs> even just like the cover for Marilyn Manson's Santa Christ Superstar, and literally all it is is half of his face. Still looked fucking creepy yeah, as shit.
1: Yeah. I don't know. I kind of miss physical media. I, I, I really, love the convenience yeah. of just it's already on the TV uh-huh. and you can just hit play. But I don't know. It was an experience. I Uh, miss the experience. There's something
0: something about the nostalgia of it, of kind of takes you back to being a kid again. And I think that's why so many of us in this in this age bracket, um, especially myself, tend to collect so much merchandise because there's something about getting transported in that place to that place again when you're surrounded by it.
1: Yeah, and I feel like back, well, back then, um, movie night was sort of an event because you had to go do that stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, we're going to go rent a movie and get some popcorn and a soda. Right. And come back to the house. Like, it was a trek. Mm -hmm. It was Oregon Trail. (laughs) But for me... He might
0: uh, die of dysentery
2: on the way. (laughs) You
1: could die. And now you're just sitting on the couch. Yeah. I I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. First impression, I don't really remember much about watching this the first time, except for uh, the mattress kill. Mm-hmm. That one bothered me a lot. Which I think this might have been the first movie where I saw mental illness in a film. And, really? Yeah. Mm. I mean, on this level. Okay. Uh, at least in a uh, in a horror setting, I mm-hmm. guess. And the guy with the bugs crawling on him, there was and cutting himself with that straight razor was just it. Just that disturbed me. Mm-hmm. I'd never seen anything like that before. Uh, you pop my cherry <laughs> on this film and uh no there was just so much of it that like this is just fucked up yeah (laughs) it was it was one of the many times throughout our relationship where we watched a movie and i get it was over and i was like what the fuck did i just watch
0: who am i with who have i chosen to be with
1: sleeping with one eye open tonight
0: And this is before I had a career involving needles. <laughs> yeah.
1: And I will tell you that I didn't appreciate anything about this film um, after the first watch because I was just shocked about what I had seen. Like mm-hmm. I, w- I was, the, the content at that time, because I hadn't seen anything. Um, I grew up where, in a house where this, that none of that stuff was allowed. Right. And um, so the, I think the content itself was so shocking that I didn't appreciate anything about like set design or acting or music or any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of. It's going to sound like, i like a wimp um it was a little overwhelming i think because it was just so much all at once and even up to that point i hadn't seen a lot of horror films yeah i get that uh so it was yeah it was it was definitely a what the fuck kind Mm -hmm. of of experience um coming around i guess from that um the cast plays a big role in that what the fuck And at the top of the list, we've got Doug Bradley playing Pinhead. Love of my life. He's an awesome human. And I'll let you tell that story here in a minute. Okay. Um, Ashley Lawrence. Ashley Lawrence (laughs) plays Christy. (laughs) Kirsty. Kirsty. She'll always be Christy to me. (laughs) Claire Higgins uh, came back as Julia. Woo! And she looked just like she was the evil stepmom in the first film. Right. But in this one.
0: Yes, mommy.
1: (laughs) All right. I don't know. And really, all they did was change her hair. I mean, realistically, it was it was a hair and makeup change. But in this film,
2: hmm yeah.
1: Uh, Kenneth Cranham plays Dr. Chenard. Imogen Borman plays Brad Pitt. Uh, Tiffany? <laughs> okay, let me clarify. So there's this joke. If you've ever seen Interview with a Vampire, in this film, she looks so much like Brad Pitt did in Interview with a Vampire. Yes. Um, and that's not a negative for either one of them. No, I mean, honestly, really. if somebody told me I look like Brad Pitt, I'd be flattered. <laughs> Uh, It'd be like, you're a fat Brad Pitt. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um sean chapman plays frank william hope plays kyle barbie wilde um plays the female cinobite also known as deep throat what an unfortunate name <laughs> simon bamford is butterball uh, nicholas vince plays the chatter and oliver smith plays browning and skinless frank and skinless frank
0: yeah so a lot of a lot of returning actors for this and i i was so appreciative of that
1: so one of the ones that didn't return was um the guy who played the dad in the first film <laughs> is it larry yeah larry didn't come back and
0: also they did they did a switcheroo on uh deep throat with us too because in the original film grace kirby portrayed deep throat and she was cousin of clive barker but when she got into that makeup supposedly it disturbed her so much seeing herself like that that when the opportunity came back around for her to reprise her role she turned it down and so we got barbie wilde to portray her in this one and she is such a cool fucking chick she was like very punk rock she was excited to play this part like i i actually prefer her in that role
1: so i'm I'm not (laughs) she confused me (laughs) i had a confused moment (laughs) when she came on screen i'm like am i or aren't i (laughs) um yeah. No, they did They did fantastic job. But Larry, and I don't remember the actor's name who played him. Do you?
0: Yes, Andrew
1: Robinson. Right. So they wanted him to come back, mm-hmm. but I guess he didn't because he didn't feel like the character had enough to do.
0: Right. And it, it to me, it doesn't make any sense for Larry to be in hell either because he really didn't Agreed. do anything wrong as a character besides be bland as white bread.
1: He... Yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean... Yeah. <laughs> that was his only crime. He was like... <laughs>
1: (laughs) No salt added chicken broth or something. (laughs) (laughs) He was was boring. No, the actor
0: himself, like he he was terrific.
1: No, no, no. I'm talking about the character.
0: Yeah, as playing those dual roles. So it is unfortunate to some degree, but I understand where they were coming from.
1: Well, I agree with him. What would he have done? I mean, I don't, I don't, I feel like the story we got was fine. I don't know where they would have worked him in, where it would have made sense for him to be Well, in it if he'd come
0: all. in and, you know, done the guy thing of I'm going to save my daughter, save the day, I feel like that would have taken away from Kirstie's arc too.
1: Yeah. And I know we'll talk about that later, but I, they kind of gave Kirstie, um a better role in mm-hmm. this one than she mm-hmm. had in the first one. Um, the first one, she was just sort of a damsel in distress. Well, not really. Um, she was just sort of there right. in the first one. And in this one, they, she had stuff to do. And I think if you had brought in someone to take away from that, it would have been to the the detriment of her character. Right. um, This was directed by Tony Randall and written by Peter Atkins and Clive Barker. But I think in the credits, it's just based on characters Mm -hmm. by Clive Barker or something like Mm -hmm. that. He didn't have as much to do with this one as he did with the first one. No,
0: no, not so much.
1: Actually, what was it? The first one was the only one that he really got involved in, wasn't
0: it? Yeah. And at that point, he kind of felt like he told his story and was kind of ready to move on with it.
1: So the first movie is based on the Hellbound Heart. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. which was a standalone Mm -hmm. story right Mm -hmm. um but when you get into this one and in i'll say some of the later entries they're incorporating uh storylines or whatever from crimson gospels
0: the scarlet gospels
1: Gospels. they're both red okay (laughs) They're both red and Books of Blood. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't, it, it I, don't, into, I
0: don't know what you're talking about it, either.
1: It, what I'm saying is, is that <laughs> this, the first movie was a solo story to begin with. Yes. Because the book was a solo story that was set in the universe that he had created. But then they tried to continue it, um, continue the story, mm-hmm. incorporating things from the universe that he had written that really didn't have much to do with that initial book. Right. Elements that were never included in it, right. like mm-hmm. Leviathan and the other Cenobites and Hell and all that other stuff. Uh-huh. I mean, it was there, but it was never meant to be part of that original yeah, novel. Yeah, we had this discussion
0: story. yesterday um, over lunch. We were ta- I was talking about, you know, this this thing about heaven and hell and all that. This was at at least at first um, in its genesis was never the intention. These were not meant to be literal angels or demons or a literal hell. These this was just another universe, another another. I don't, don't know the word I'm looking for.
1: Like but, an alternate dimension, maybe? Yeah,
0: just something like that. I mean, they were almost aliens to some degree. Um, and then once somebody else took hold of the writing, then it became more of a, you know, kind of theological type of thing. And then when Clive Barker came back and had and wrote the Scarlet Gospels, then he kind of picked that up and continued right, it and right. made it a literal, you know, heaven and hell yeah.
1: type story. But, I mean, I don't know. From what I understand, in the first film, when it was, when he wrote it or whatever, he had included some explanations for some of these Cenobites that we see and like how they came to be what they are and that they were originally human and all that stuff. But like a lot of the things, and I know we've talked about it before, a lot of the things that Clive Barker does, he writes it on such a scale that it makes it really hard to put it all in a movie. Yes. And so yeah. that's the reason I, I've heard some complaints about the storytelling and I know we just listened to one where they were complaining about editing and, and unrelated, but um, I can see where the scale that he does things on, you, you you've got to cut out so much to get it into like a 90 minute runtime that mm-hmm. yeah it's going to make the story a little clunky there's right. going to be things that don't make sense and there's a couple of things that we call that in this movie we're like how would they know that why would they mm-hmm. why would they know that well there may have been an explanation at some point but they couldn't make a seven hour movie so right they, they cut and a bunch obviously of stuff
0: out. horror films don't get the type of budget that they get now you know um so unfortunately a lot of stuff that probably would have made more sense or given us the the scope and its reality unfortunately we were not able to get right
1: right so since we're talking about story let's go ahead and talk about story (laughs) how do you feel about it
0: see the to me what a good sequel does is it takes everything that is great about the original and builds upon it and that is one of the things that i enjoy about this film the most and when i hear somebody say that this film is their favorite i absolutely understand why they have that opinion because This one just has this world building in it, and it, I mean, it almost feels like a fantasy film more than it does a horror film. This is very, very D&D, like...
1: It's got a sort of a never-ending story feel to it in some places.
0: I mean, almost. It's just, the tone is so much different, and that could be attributed to Tony Randall saying that he was battling some hardcore depression at the time, Um, Everything from the from the hues, the color palette, everything is so much different than it was in the original film. Or the the original film was so dirty and dank, and there was a lot of warm tones, browns and reds. um, Whereas this one goes heavy into the blues and the greys and the greens, um, and feels like like hell. Feels like you're in a dungeon the whole entire time. There's something that almost feels medieval about it, almost. And almost everything about it just feels like it got turned up to 11. And and I know as we go on through the other categories, we'll talk about that. But in terms of the story itself, it feels the same exact way. It feels like they cranked it up just a little bit more. Like, yes, we set up all of these things here, but we're going to go even further into it. We're going to explore more about what this world is. And I, I really loved that and I love that while this was never intended to have a franchise let alone a sequel we got some character arcs that we weren't necessarily given in that first film we tied up some loose ends even and we still set up some stuff for it to be continued ultimately so I thought the story was great and I you know despite what other people say I actually thought some of the writing was really brilliant I it's it's very mood inducing and if you're not in the right head space this can actually be a very very depressing film um, it explores a lot I feel about the human psyche and that that idea of living in your own hell that I don't know that really a lot of people were exploring at that time and that's, that's one thing that I love about the Clive Barker universe so much is, is exploring what's within I guess you?
1: Oh so <laughs> I, I think I think the first thing that I liked about the story is that it does sort of the same thing that Halloween and Halloween 2 did. And I like it if you have a sequel that picks up right where the last one left off. Mm-hmm. So you've got a little bit of continuity there. Um, something that was a little... I, I don't know how to describe it. Aiden has, has, has played video games like this before. Where like you start off and you're in a really small space. But that's like the tutorial. And then you open a door. And all of a sudden he's like, it's an open world RPG. You can go anywhere you want. Mm-hmm. And this was like that. You know, the first film, you're in a house. Well, specifically you're in an attic. Mm-hmm. And you spend most of that film in an attic. Mm-hmm. And then this is I guess where they opened the door. And now it's an open world RPG and you can go anywhere you want. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: It just, the world inside the film got huge mm-hmm. immediately. Um, I feel like it was managed pretty well. I mean, you do spend, I guess the locations aren't as limited, but I'm, I guess I'm thinking about the, um, more like the theology that you get the idea that everything's much bigger than you originally realized in the first film. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, I think it flows pretty well um, with Kirsty there and all that stuff. I feel like the character motivations were written pretty well. There's some elements of the writing that I like, there's one part where Kirsty is walking them through exactly what happened to Frank and Julia and all that mm-hmm. stuff. And there's no reason for her to know that. Right, right, right. Um, and then the fact that she knows that Julia can be resurrected through the mattress that she died on. She shouldn't know that.
0: I, w- I will definitely give you that.
1: And I feel like that w- that one specifically would have been pretty simple. I mean, you learn early on that Shenard has been obsessed with a cult and, and the Leviathan and the boxes and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it would have made more sense for him to have known that through research. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that would have been an easy change. So I, I guess there is, would you call it continuity?
0: I I think they were trying to get the exposition across and and Kirsty was that person to that they wanted to give us that exposition. I just don't necessarily know that or I don't necessarily think that we needed that as an audience. I think that having seen the film before, we we pretty well know how it works. So, I think it might have worked better if we as an audience were figuring it out with Kirsty.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I'm sure that they gave her those lines or that it was written that way to tell us more than to tell them. Um, But honestly, if they had left a lot of that stuff in the dark, like you're saying, and you find out as you go along, or maybe you don't find out, Mm -hmm. um, because I think we've talked about that before too. Sometimes the stuff that you don't know the why for is scarier.
0: And it goes along, it lends to that theme of puzzle building. You know, we're trying to put the pieces together with her. You know, she could could have been going along with going through this in her head, and then we could have seen flashbacks from the original movie. Right. of going, okay, this happened, this happened, and this happened, and putting the pieces together in her mind, and then she could have went, right. oh, this is how it works.
1: Or, you know, Julia have her villain moment, and she could have said, this is how I came back.
0: Right, yeah. Um,
1: but, it, I don't know, there's there just some elements that I feel like it, they could have put those lines in that exposition in different hands mm-hmm. in terms of the cast, and it would have made it, let, it wasn't confusing, it just felt awkward. Yeah. You know, it was just weird for to get that information from that individual. Right. Um. <clears throat> outside of that, it, it's fine. You got your mad scientist, basically, who is wanting... He, he's, he just wants to know, right? So I guess in the in the first film, Lust, I guess would be considered uh, that thing. Frank was chasing sensation and Julia was chasing him. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this one the guy's chasing knowledge, mm-hmm. the doctor is. Mm-hmm. and Because really, he's the villain. Pinhead's yes. not the main villain no, in this. No, no, no. And I do like that. I, I prefer Pinhead as like...
0: He's always a, described himself a, as an impartial judge. As
1: a judge, yeah. And mm-hmm. I prefer him that way i think in later films he's he is the primary antagonist where it's like he's just coming to get you mm-hmm. and i don't really care for that I, I prefer this um you did a thing and now i have to come get you yeah sort of approach um but i feel like he was written as a, as a believable villain I, I like his transition uh although i feel like the way the way he acts it and then we can talk about acting later um he realizes almost immediately when julia comes back that he's in over his head yes mm-hmm. he, he's got that what what did i do yeah he, he has this oh shit moment
2: mm-hmm.
1: um and realizes is that there's really no way to back out of that but then she kind of seduces him into continuing on mm-hmm. uh, which I feel like plays true to the first one right. where Julia had that same moment you know Frank starts to come back and at first she's like oh shit and then I'm he, w-
0: in way over my head and
1: then he draws her into it and she continues going so yeah. I like it that they sort of not really mirrored but they they run parallel the right. way she was in the first film to the way he is in this film um the ending I'm I'm good with the ending I guess uh, I don't like it that they kill Pinhead um I I liked it that he he reverted back to his human form i think that was interesting Mm -hmm. interesting element Mm -hmm. to the story Mm -hmm. that all of them came back but i don't like it that he died yeah um
0: that that's one of my main complaints about this one (laughs)
1: And then, but originally they were setting this up for Julia to be like the she queen. She was the villain. She was supposed to be the queen bee of hell. Yes. After the first film, mm-hmm. like she's taken over. Mm-hmm. Um, And I think Pinhead was just supposed to have cameos <laughs> or something <laughs> like that. Um, And at the very end, you know, you see arms come back through a mattress and pull the moving guy in. And there's no explanation for it. And I, But to me, I'm thinking, okay, they wrote that to be Julia, mm-hmm. not to be Pinhead. Right. So again, like I get setting it up for sequels, but the sequel, you're coming back with Pinhead, not with Julia.
0: Right. Mm -hmm. So,
1: by killing Pinhead, I think they made the intro to the next film more difficult. Or they made it make less sense.
0: Uh, I don't necessarily feel that way. You don't think so? No, I, I don't, because... And, we, and of course we're not talking about part three but the way into unleashing pinhead in part three is very much like opening the box you have to feed it and feed it and feed it in uh, in order it, it's it's like putting skin on frank and julia all over again it's it's kind of going with that same theme so i i get it which is why i say as as many people say that they don't feel like part three belongs because the tone is different i still feel like it belongs because i can still see those parallels that that yeah. that run there, um, and it's interesting you saying um, talking about Chenard kind of hungry for that knowledge. I like that we uh, again it goes back to the writing. I like that we get that full arc with him. You know, they we flash back to points where he's a child and torturing small animals and 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 going and just not. It's the same thing with Frank. You know, albeit they have different interests. You know, Frank's being more sexual and. and and uh, like you said, Shenard's being more knowledge-based and the character of Elliot Spencer, this is when the first time we get him kind of properly the same thing, which we get more of the explanation in part three as to where he was at mentally in this whole thing. And it's basically that kind of world weary. I've experienced everything this world has to offer and I, it's still not enough. And I love that that is an ongoing theme with our kind of central villains in this franchise. Yeah.
1: In a way, all of them share greed. Yeah. Greed for something.
0: Yeah. I would say all the way up to hell, the the remake that we just had with the character of Void, same thing. And to me, he was almost the perfect amalgamation of Frank and Shenard. because yes, he had had all every sexual desire filled, but he was also hungry for that knowledge. But he was also richer than shit and like, like JP in part three. So it felt like he was this mushing of all three of those characters right. and thought that was really great too. Right, right. But yeah, I just, I, I guess that's my thing. My ultimate love about this story is where, yes, you you had a more intimate story in the original that was the disintegration of a family and it, and it was so intimate in that story and, and this dark love story and you take it and you're like, it's so much more than that. It can be so much bigger than that. And yeah, so ultimately I, I yeah. think it's a terrific story.
1: Yeah, but I think, so back to me, <laughs> <laughs> talking about story naturally <laughs> I feel like it's a good I feel like it's a it's a good story but it does have its issues
0: oh I'm not saying it's a perfect um, film I'm just telling you why right. I like it personally
1: right right I just I don't know again there were some small changes that they could have made to the story itself that um, would have tied it to the first one a little bit better um, in terms of who knows what and I feel like obviously they were setting it up for a sequel they could have changed the ending just a little bit and made setting up that sequel better although I do understand what you're saying about you know pinhead basically comes back the same way Julia and Frank did through the Pillar of Souls mm-hmm. I get it, but then where was Julia? Because clearly she came back again through the mattress.
0: Well, they started it that way and then cut it out because originally, instead of the Pillar of Souls, she was supposed to rise up from the mattress wearing a black version of the blue dress she wore the entire film. Right, right.
1: But, you know, there's arms that come out and grab that moving guy.
0: Well, I guess you're never going to know, like, how many takes it licks it takes to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop.
1: I don't know. (laughs) No one knows. You're
0: going to have to ask (laughs) Peter Atkins about that.
1: (laughs) Right? So anyway, um, moving on to special effects. <sighs>
0: I'm 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 sorry I'm a stand for this movie I always have been I always will be and when you love a film as much as you do I think a lot of us can overlook its quirks and what what it was limited to with the funds and the time that it was made and so as far as I'm concerned yes there are things that did not stand the test of time to some but to me I don't don't mind those things. I have gone on record a dozen times at least talking about I love stop motion. I think it's great. I think there's something charming about it. Um, It does not bother me in the slightest. Um, When I watch it with somebody like Aiden when again going back to that pillar of souls rising out of the mattress Aiden was like oh my god you can tell that's green screened and I'm like yeah and <laughs> like I don't care it does not take me out of it and especially the first time you you watch a film like this, and you maybe you're not a film expert, you're just a casual horror film viewer, which is what I consider us to be. We're not experts by any means, we haven't had any education on this. I watching it the first time and seeing that, you're like, Holy shit! Oh my god, what's going on? So, I was not taken out of it at all. That being said, I think the gore effects still hold up so very well, and they're even improved upon in some cases. I think. Skinless Julia is a vast improvement over Skinless Frank in every conceivable way. As someone kind of in the field, I love the the attention to detail with the vein work and the muscle and it just, it really looked like somebody took the time and the care more so than in the original film. That's, that's just my opinion. And I know a lot of people say that the, that first film just makes them feel dirty, like they need to shower. They're still scenes in this film that are the same way—you still get that ick factor in a lot of in a lot of scenes, particularly the the, the in Browning's kill. Don't
1: you? Oh, so <clears throat> I feel like the effects in this film are way better <laughs> than the first film. Um, again, like you talked about the skinless Julia thing, the execution was so much better, and and I think it all comes down to the attention to detail that you mentioned. Um, that Frank, everything was it was very dark, and so maybe it didn't have to be as detailed but Julia was in a brightly lit home mm-hmm. and they did a fantastic job, in my opinion. I don't know what a skinless person looks like, but if I was going to imagine it, it would look like that. Yeah. Um, I feel like it was fantastic. The um, stop motion stuff, I i don't know. I watched Clash of the Titans when I was a kid and I thought it was really <laughs> cool, so I don't get offended by stop motion.
0: Jason the Argonauts.
1: <laughs> I, yeah, I just, it doesn't bother me. Uh, as far as, like, you're talking about Aiden calling out the green screen thing, that's, this movie's nearly 40 years old. I don't have, a, a, a my expectation for optical effects from the 80s are pretty low. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I kind of know what they're going to look like so it doesn't bother me that when they look the way I expect them to look. Like when they have the laser battle at the end of this film. (laughs) It's it's And it's shooting like blue balls all over the place. <laughs> I, I don't expect them to be good. It looks like it looked in the '80s, and honestly, I I don't know that I wouldn't prefer those type of optical effects to some shitty CG now.
0: Right? Yeah. Exactly. I,
1: I, I just because CG is another one. Like you can have a film that looks really good, and as soon as they botch the CG, you're like, God damn it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know, but I'm not such I'm not such a huge fan of, of CG, honestly. So mm-hmm. maybe that's it. Maybe if I'm just,
0: done right, like like you've got the Marvel scale of money, and you've got. thanos that looks like a fucking human being could be like looks just like josh brolin that's some good fucking work right there you put chris chris evans's head on a teeny tiny little guy and it looks completely seamless that's one thing but there is some cg out there that is fucking atrocious like i think everybody saw the newest flash movie and saw exactly what we're fucking talking about where it's just oh my god guys, did you
1: you even try it can it can be done poorly um but i mean to get to that level, you've got to have, you know, a $500 million budget. And in the 80s, they didn't get that. Right, mm-hmm. Studios didn't have that kind of money back then.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so I, it doesn't bother me. The Chenard stuff is a little... I don't know. He was too blue.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I like his blue. He was like
1: a fucked up Smurf. And I just... <laughs> I feel like, but that's makeup. That's not effects. The effects themselves, like if you're looking at the wires cutting into his face and all that stuff, Mm -hmm. I feel like that was all really well done. I just didn't care for the color palette they put on his face. Um, he was way too Mimi for me. (laughs) Too much blue eyeshadow. I didn't, (laughs) I didn't dig it. Um, but the, back to the mattress scene, Browning's kill, that, that kill disturbed me. Like they did a fantastic job on him.
0: Mm -hmm. It looked way too realistic.
1: That scene was rough. Like that was, you almost feel like you're watching a snuff film or something. Like, did he really die? Mm -hmm. Uh, um, but yeah, and a lot of that comes down to the acting, and I know we'll talk about the acting here in a minute, but um, I, I don't have any rocks to throw at the special effects in this film. I feel like they were really well executed, specifically um, like your blood and gore effects. Those those were some pretty amazing. Those I would th- say that those effects rival anything that you might find in a modern film.
0: Are there things that are better in the original? Absolutely. I don't... Nothing in this film could rival the rebirth scene of Frank. There, the level of work work that went into that and the way it looked was so beautiful and looked so organic and just so, if, if, if it makes sense, it was so disgusting and grotesque that it was almost beautiful to watch knowing what went into it. And in this one, the only only slight rocks I would throw at it in terms of continuity would be if the story didn't get played with a little bit, you know, we had, we had a change to one of our, our most important one of our fan favorite Cenobites being Chatterer, that he had almost his entire aesthetic changed. And, and you know, that's that's nobody's fault. The actor obviously has to be able to see and hear to and perform. Breathe. Yeah. Um, but so I get that, but at the same time, I wish they hadn't cut out the scene of them operating on him to show that because a lot of us were like, what? What? What happened? You know, why doesn't he look the way he does? Or did. He doesn't have those wires in his cheeks anymore and now he has eyeballs like what the fuck's going on? You know? And then when did Kirsty find time to get a haircut between throwing the box in the fire and ending up in the psychiatric ward? <laughs> you know? It's just it's just little things like that that at this point are basically nitpicks but you know we, we were talking about Julia looking so good but I was thinking there was scenes of Frank just sitting in that attic where you could just see what was probably KY jelly or something to that effect just dripping off of him and he was just so oozy and pussy and I don't feel like Julia was that but we fast forwarded through so much shit this time. They and it's this kind of a double edged sword here I guess because the only complaint I would have is that I do feel like this one still takes a while to get us where we want to go. Having said that they just bypassed all the bullshit of getting. Julia back to her normal form. They were like, no, we're not going to fuck with all this shit of bringing her victims and having to sit a whole 70 minutes before we get her back. They fast forwarded through all of that shit, but it still feels like it takes so long to get there.
1: Yeah, I appreciated that they skipped that because we've already seen that process. If you've seen the first film, you've seen it, sort of. She didn't come out of a floorboard and she didn't begin as a skeleton. Um, she came out of that mattress and all she needed was some skin and she was good to go. But So maybe yeah. that's why
0: you don't get to see more of those effects of her just yeah. looking absolutely disgusting. But
1: again, I'm, I'm kind of glad that they did. It was well done in the first one, but we're talking about story again again instead of special effects
0: <laughs> no no what I was trying to say was because of what they did with the story we didn't get as many of those effects that he got in his different yeah that's true transitioning from skinless Frank to that's regular true. Frank um, we so, missed a lot of the ooze
1: so one more thing that I would talk about special effects wise um, was when they're in hell and Kirsty runs into Frank again mm-hmm. down there um, I like the setting I like the way they did help you know it's like a dark dungeon or whatever and I know it's a set and I know those walls are made out of foam and it's fine but i feel like it looked it looked good but the effect where um those slabs come out and you it's clearly women mm-hmm. writhing under the sheets mm-hmm. and then he yanks the sheet away and there's nothing there yeah i like it yeah. <laughs> i don't know i realize it's a magic trick but <laughs> i like it anyway um and then the heart rip oh that was good
0: god that is so boner material that was for me good. um that that's the scene where you find out that there's the big fake out between when uh kirsty is wearing julia's skin and you know it's still Claire Higgins sitting there in, in I mean, not in character, it's obviously Kirsty, but kind of playing Kirsty, and she's got, like, half of her face hanging off. That effect was really good, too. And the, the editing was so seamless there that you almost can't tell that...
1: Even the voice dub wasn't terrible.
0: Yeah, like, it, it was pretty damn good. And there's some more, like, really kind of fucked up shit. And, and, and we could talk all day about the effects, obviously. Obviously, we can't talk about everything but even like the circus type scene the carnival with um the baby with the stitched mouth and the and the guy the clown sitting and juggling its eyeballs that seems very reminiscent of michael myers getting his eyeballs shot out in part two yeah um right. some of that work was really unsettling and really creepy and yeah just just brilliant but we'll be again we'll be here all day talking about right. effects so <laughs> right.
1: well let's talk about acting instead
0: okay um um... <laughs> I never know how to say this without sounding like a shit, but I'm, I'm I'm going to have to be honest and truthful. While I feel like Ashley Lawrence did a better job in this film than she did in the original, she's still not my favorite performance. She's still not my favorite final girl, which sucks because she just did the coolest fucking thing for me. So it's nothing against her personally. She was such a young actress at the time and has obviously, you know, had years and years to build upon her craft but at at this time you can still see where she's still kind of green as an actress but I do think that she did miles better than she did in the original and was a pretty formidable final girl in this one um where you do believe at a certain point she kind of can stand on her own against the Cenobites and one of the things I love about her is that she does use her cunning she does use her brain to somehow outsmart these guys every time she comes into contact with them. Yeah.
1: So to her credit, this was only her second feature. Yeah. She had done um, a little bit of TV work. Hellraiser was her first, and Hellbound was her second.
0: Yeah. So yeah. Um, for me, I think what has made at least these first two films so successful in their performances will always be due to the fact that they used stage actors, classically trained actors for these roles, because in the original film, it feel, again going back to that intimate setting, it feels almost like you're watching a play almost and in this one it feels almost Shakespearean in a way, their performances and God help me every time Doug Bradley enters a room and the music swells, he is so fucking regal that you just like, I swear to God, I, I just, it. I, I have to have a Wayne and Garth moment every single time he enters a room. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) You know, we're not worthy, like, every single time. Like, his performance, I believe, is the one solo thing that has kept this franchise going as long as it can. And why it's still talked about today and debated upon every single time they recast that role. I just, I I think his performance is unparalleled, absolutely. Um, I think that Kenneth Cranham did a terrific job also is because the way, what Travis was saying earlier, kind of like when he first gets into this situation of thinking, oh shit, I've just opened Pandora's box and there's nothing I can do to shut it down. You can see that conveyed through his eyes without him ever having to say a word. And what is going is one of my favorite scenes, whether regardless of how Travis feels about it, when he is first unveiled as a Cenobite, there's this switch that happens where before he looked so afraid and so cautious. Now he's void. Void of anything that was there before, and you can see that, and I think it is also a testament to his performance. So, it, those, uh, oh, 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 before before I yeah. move on, before <clears throat> I move on, and then I'll let you have it. I fucking Claire Higgins supremacy. She was my favorite thing about the original film, apart from Pinhead. But same thing, ramping everything up to eleven. She absolutely stepped up to badass boss babe bitch in this film. Like everything that was. so the Sort of like starting to come out and be approached in that original film where as she's bringing Frank victims, you can see that there's a confidence building and she's starting to become her own person outside of this this marriage. You're starting to see that as she's sitting and as somebody's being murdered in the attic, she's sitting on that couch and she's kind of taking joy and all that in, in what's going on. And in this one, she's just, I don't need no man. like. <laughs> Like Her arc, to me, is one of the best things about this film. And I love that she got her story tied up in such a way that she was such a badass. And her performance of that, not only did she convey strong, she was also sexy. She was terrifying. And I was, there are scenes where you could literally be afraid of her. Like, she was just evil incarnate and it was delicious. <laughs> okay, back to you, Jim.
1: All right. <laughs> um, I guess I'll start with Doug Bradley. He, he's, he's always great as pinhead. He's always great every time. Um, what's that look for?
0: I just feel like I've said too much now. <laughs> But you know how I feel about I don't this. Know.
1: You were going on for like 10 minutes. So it's <laughs> fine. Um, no, I feel like he, he does a great job. He is Pinhead. And I mean, it, it's easy it's easy to say this person is that character, right? Um, but you don't really appreciate it until someone else plays them, <laughs> you know? Right. Like, it was easy to say Robert Englund is just Freddy Krueger, but you don't really appreciate that until they cast someone else. And then you're like, what the, what is this? And it's the same thing with him. Um, I don't think I really appreciated his performance until I saw someone else play Pinhead. And I'm like, no, 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 mm-hmm. this is all wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Go past I can do it again.
0: I would say Jamie Clayton is the only other person I've seen portray that character that I was like, okay, I can get behind this.
1: I liked that one. Mm -hmm. That one was good. Um, But if, I don't know, is that just his voice or did they do something to his voice? Oh,
0: it's, it's, it's been,
1: it's, but I feel like he, I don't know. He has a presence when he comes on. Like you, when he walks in, you know, he's the guy in charge. Mm -hmm. Even in the first film, when you didn't know he was the guy in charge, when he walked into the attic first time, you're like, that's the guy, Mm -hmm. that's the guy in charge. Um, But he's been, he's been acting for a really long time and like you said he's a stage actor but apparently he was friends with um clive barker in school mm-hmm. and then they formed their own theater company and they right. were, and mm-hmm. he was um barker was writing with peter atkins there mm-hmm. so uh he's got he's got a lot of experience yes we'll say that um and actually i read this thing i, I guess he's he's a real human <laughs> <laughs> he's not like a hollywood star that doesn't give a shit about anybody mm-hmm. they were at an after party and everybody was ignoring him and mm-hmm. it hurt his feelings but they ignored him because they didn't know who he was they'd never seen him out of his makeup
2: right mm-hmm. but just
1: the fact that that bothered him makes me think okay he's just a real guy yeah and I appreciate that mm-hmm. that he's he's just a real guy um Ashley Lawrence I agree with you her performance in this one's better than the first one but her look was good you know I feel like the makeup and all that stuff and her reactions were good I just think it was still a line delivery yes sort of issue yes but it's it's a line delivery issue that you expect from someone that this is only the second film they've ever right. done mm-hmm. and um to sort of add to that it's not like there were there was a lot of time in between these because this film got greenlit before they even Release the right. first one. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: I mean, she didn't have she didn't have a lot of time to develop anything between the first one and this one. So mm-hmm. I don't. I'm not gonna complain about that. Claire Higgins is Julia. Um, I like her way better in this one. Yes. Than I did in the first one. But I feel like they gave her more to do than just seduce people and kiss Frank. Um, <laughs> I like it. She has better lines. She brings that badass bitch um mentality to the screen, mm-hmm. and I love it.
0: And gives the best pimp slap I have ever fucking seen in She's my just life. Like,
1: Get that corn out of my face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> um,
0: like she could run me over with her car, and I would thank her, yeah <laughs> energy I, I don't
1: know if i would i don't know if I'd go that far, but she she plays queen bee really well, and she looked good, yeah, <laughs> um,
0: yeah, her back in that dress was everything,
1: whew, yeah, um even when it was missing a piece still, <laughs> still good,
0: um, ooh baby, I like your roll.
1: Kenneth- <laughs> <laughs> Kenneth Cranham, I, his, was, his was good, um, but he does a lot of, he, he was just required to emote with his face a lot because he doesn't have a ton of lines in the middle section of the movie. A lot of it is him looking at Julia going, that's fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> Right, yeah. If it's him, just going. I've I've made a mistake, uh, but it was it was fine. Um, the girl that played Tiffany, Imogen she, Borman. Imogen Borman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they basically said you're going to be in this movie, but don't say anything. Yeah. And it was it was okay. It was I think just okay.
0: when she finally snapped out of her psychosis or whatever you call it, um, I think she did okay. What's I
1: was going to say, I can't complain about hers because they didn't give her shit to do because, except sit on the floor and play with puzzles for the first two thirds of the film. Yeah,
0: because there there is a scene where. Le- the leviathan light hits her in the eyes and she gets the flashback of what happened to her mother and she l- actually lets out this really heartbreaking cry you know and so she did with what she was given to do i think she was
1: fine yeah yeah um the cinobites were all just the cinobites uh barbie wilde was the only one that had any lines
2: mm-hmm.
1: um I, I it's hard to judge you know nicholas vince or simon bamford as much their, as we love them on theirs because they basically just walk on screen <laughs> Um, and that I'm not saying that as a negative, it's just, it's hard to judge someone acting when it's like, all right, walk in now stop. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like her line delivery was good. Mm-hmm. Um, very cold and monotone and, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just, I liked the way she did it. How about that? I can't <laughs> say anything amazing about it. I just liked the way she said it and she didn't have a ton of lines, but when she said it, I'm like, well, that's kind of cool. Maybe it was just her. I was like, yeah. <laughs> She's got it cool. <laughs> but overall, I feel like the acting in the film was was solid. But again, you, you take Pinhead out of it and it changes the film. Yes. So um, I think he, I think his performance adds to everyone else's performance. Yes. It's like a shared glory kind of thing. Yeah,
0: I feel like he elevates everyone around him.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like um, like Tony Todd. I don't know if we've talked about that in the Candyman mm-hmm. film. I think his acting made everyone else's acting look better, sort of. <laughs> Is that shitty?
0: No, not necessarily.
1: Uh, but I, f- I feel like that's what Doug bradley brings to his roles in this film yeah. as long as he's written well because yes. we know that there's been a couple of films where he was not written very well mm-hmm. and it, it it was tough his performance was still good but the writing was just horrible so mm-hmm. yeah that's what i have to say about that <laughs> so now we are to quote kill and scene
0: we haven't even talked about the score
1: oh i skipped that
0: you terrible terrible person i forgot
1: there was music <laughs>
0: You always forget that there's music. That's nothing new. No.
1: I'm going to go first because you're going to tee off on this thing. Yes. So I think I like the scope and scale of the film or the music in this film. Um, I don't remember the guy's name Christopher Young. Christopher Young. Well done, sir. <laughs> well done. <laughs> So, I, I like the contrast between the music in this film and the first one. We just keep talking about... We should have just done them both at the same time. Um, no, I, in the first one, it's very quiet. It's very intimate. The music is intimate. And in this one, with increasing the scale of the world, he increased the scale of the music. Yes. And it's it's just epic uh, sounding music. It, it's like, I don't know. I like the incorporation of the, the orchestra and you've got a choir in, in places in the background and I... I don't... What? She's sitting over there making faces at me right now, y'all. It's not cool. Because he... He copied my homework i did not copy your homework <laughs> so
0: did because these are were all the things i was saying yesterday
1: <laughs> see how you rub Huff on me <laughs>
0: That's why he wanted to go first.
1: But no, no. Um, <laughs> it's very atmospheric overall. And it's not just the pinhead theme, but I think the the quieter scenes, uh, the music fits the scene very well. And it kind of lends its... Uh, there are a lot of scenes that feel cold because the lighting and the set dressing and all that stuff, the scenes feel cold. And I feel like the music in the background adds to that feeling. So I feel like it all matches up really well. But we've talked about this with uh, with Danny Elfman. Mm-hmm. He does a great job of writing music that fits what you're seeing on screen and enhances the feeling that they intend to convey and I feel like he did a great job in this film with that as well. Yeah. Back to you, Tim. So,
0: I can't <laughs> I can't really cover any new ground. <laughs> Um I will say that I own both of the soundtracks to Parts 1 and 2 and listen to them just for pleasure because they are both so beautiful in their own ways like like what we what I've been saying about both films where yes intimate film gives a more intimate score yes there are more intense Uh, pieces to the original film, but it doesn't quite hit the level that the score does in the sequel. Like Travis said, everything being just brought to this massive, massive scale, it was like more cowbell. Like, we've got to have more cowbell in this This one.
1: This one goes to 11.
0: It does. It absolutely goes to 11. And it just feels, this is a score that if you have it at just the right volume, you feel like you can feel it in your chest and that makes for a more intense viewing experience in in my opinion and like it's it's so mood inducing to me and you do still get I mean because one great thing about having brought back Christopher Young from the original is that he is already more than aware of what he has done in that original film and says okay what can I do to improve upon what I did before but he also keeps um peace from that original film and interweaves them into the new stuff. So yeah, it's just, it's just brilliant. I I love him as a composer, even outside of these two films. He's done other work that I have really enjoyed. And yeah, I I can't say enough good things about him. This this is probably one of my favorite film scores of all time. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you just brought up a good point about um <clears throat> musical continuity from one film to the next. And didn't realize that was important. But now that you've said it, mm-hmm. yeah, I feel like it adds. To it,
0: and, and and even something just as small as the toll that you get from that original film. When you hear that toll of, you know, the Cenobites are coming, that's so important. That is that. Yeah. I, I love that he kept so many great things from that first film and brought him on, to, brought him through to the second film and that added
1: to it. Indeed. So All right, now, now. Now we're going to move on to quote Kill and Scene. <laughs> and go.
0: Uh quote. Don't at me, everybody. I did not choose a pinhead quote for this, and I feel terribly, terribly ashamed about it. <laughs> but my favorite quote actually comes from Dr. Shenard post-Cenobite. Um, I love when he steps out of that, I don't know what you call that thing, the, the Cenobite-making machine? <laughs> the Cenobite-making phone booth?
1: It's the Play-Doh factory. <laughs>
0: I don't I don't know what you call that thing. But when he steps up and that, that music is kind of swelling, it's very ethereal. And he looks around, takes in his surroundings and he says, and to think I hesitated. Like, I just love that so much. I feel like if I were to turn and get turned into a Cenobite, that would be my literal exact sentiment. Like just, I think it's so cool that he had all of this fear and all of this doubt. And then it just instantly is washed away by, I am so proud powerful. I'm I'm um, omnipresent. I'm just, you know, alpha and omega. Like it's just again, it's just conveyed through him in that line delivery and I think it's terrific. Um kill, I'm going to go with Frank actually. I I struggled with this one a little bit, but I didn't want to have the same favorite scene as favorite kill. So, um mine was Frank and that's mostly because of Julia. Um I was talking about how we get some closure to the storyline of that is her and Frank's story. Um, I love that he still, after all this time, thinks that he has a grip on her. But she goes all ludicrous on him, back up, back up, you don't know me like that. And rips his heart out of his chest and says the same line that he said to her when he killed her. Nothing personal, baby. And then the flames shoot up behind her and it's just, it's such a fucking you-go-bitch moment. And I was so proud of that character for standing up to him in that way Um, favorite scene Um, so so I'm going to go off on a small tangent here again if there were anything I would change about the opening of this film I would leave out the last time on Dragon Ball Z moment <laughs> right because I don't feel like that was needed especially if you're if you're doing what I do and you watch these two films back to back you it's unnecessary you don't need it but if you have all the lights off and it's very quiet and the first thing you see is Elliot Spencer sitting on the floor in that hangar with the box and then getting transformed into Pinhead and he's screaming and wailing in agony and begging for his life all the while simultaneously smiling with pleasure. Oh my god, that is how you open a fucking film. I don't know that it gets any better than that. I love that scene so much and every single time I watch it, I'm just like, fuck yeah. Yes. Like, so if it's me, I would have done without the previously on and just opened with that because it's
1: brilliant. So. Sounds good. <laughs> you? All right. So quote, oh, I've got a cup, but it's actually, it's not really, I mean, it is quotes, but it's, it's lines from the film. So when Kirsty runs into them for the very first time, um, and she's arguing with him about to open the box and all this stuff. And the female Cenobite says, perhaps you're teasing us. Are you teasing us? <laughs> There's something really ominous about that. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know something about that gets me and then later in that same conversation when pinhead says we have no more surprises and, and uh deep throat says we've always been here mm-hmm. fuck mm-hmm. we've always been here that's fucked up and of course later you find out that that's just what they think because clearly they were human at one point in time
2: mm-hmm.
1: um yeah yeah both that 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 whole exchange is fantastic but the way she didn't de- the way she delivers those just so flat i think I don't know. It was, and impact- yet
0: there's a little bit of glee behind yeah. it, just yeah. enough to make it creepy. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Maybe it was just impactful, but maybe that was just me. Um, yeah, there's another one where the guys said, "What do? We, what is it? Um, are you? Are you? Have you gone crazy?" And she's like, "I don't. Know, you're the fucking expert." <laughs> when Kirsty's yelling at that doctor, um, kill is going to have to be Browning because that and it. Don't get me wrong. I don't like that kill. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like it at all. But it is. If we're talking about the two films, which we're not. We're talking about the second one, but that's the kill that disturbed me the most mm-hmm. out of everything in this film that's the one that bothered me um and a lot of it's the acting because we didn't talk about browning's acting in that jesus i thought he was really dying yeah and it's that that scene just gets me so that's that's probably my favorite kill even though that him laying on the mattress is not what kills him julia kills him um, and how she stabs her hand into the back of his head and he keeps fighting i have no idea but that that kill was rough
0: his performance is very unnerving. It's
1: uh, it's uncomfortable to mm-hmm. watch. Um, scene, I'm going to have to go with uh, the first time. I guess it's when Shenard uh, and Julia, when she takes him to Leviathan. Mm-hmm. And you get to see it for the first time. You get mm-hmm. to see the labyrinth and Leviathan above. And,
0: and you hear that, that tone.
1: Yeah, the foghorn or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because that's the moment when you realize how big what you're dealing with really is mm-hmm. in the film. You're like, it's just, I don't know. It's very ominous. Mm-hmm. It's an ominous scene. Mm-hmm. And that's, I guess that's the point in the film where, you know, you knew the odds were stacked against Kirsty the whole time. And then when you see that, you're like, she can't make it. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you beat that? So
0: <clears throat> I have two shout outs that I have to give. Okay, shout them. Because these are, these are two more scenes that every time they happen, I'm just, just such a little girl at Christmas time. Um, And that's going to be when Tiffany first opens the box. And again, that music swells. The music does so much for this fucking movie. And the the Cenobites, the the quote lackeys, are kind of starting to file in very slowly. And then the music gets louder and louder and more powerful. And then you hear wait. And you see Pinhead come in like, oh my god, that gives me wood every fucking time. He's it's all- so fucking good. No. <laughs> yes. No? No. <laughs> Oh, wow. That was actually pretty good. <laughs> but I I love that. Not necessarily the dialogue, but I just love him coming into a room. He knows how to make an entrance. He really fucking does. And I would say in part three, he has one that is almost equally as good. Um, and then the second one being the scene where they do start to revert back to their former selves because without knowing what ultimately happens to the four of them, seeing him him kind of take this this you girls run I've got this moment that he has is so fucking cool and watching him backing up and his face changing progressively even with the, the bad laser lights whatever it's still so fucking cool I love I love when um they're all standing there and Shenard goes oh good a fight and they're just th- standing there all badass like they're gonna challenge him it's just that whole Scene apart from their demise, is really good. So anyway, just had to just had to give those a shout out.
1: <laughs> I gotta say though, that's that's not how I saw that fight ending.
0: No, no, I it's really, really not.
1: thought Chenard was gonna come in there and try to whip his dick out, and Pinhead was just gonna tear him apart.
0: Well, I think a thing that people don't understand is that Chenard was acting almost as an arm of Leviathan. He was attached to him physically. Is that why he
1: had the dick on his head?
0: <laughs> you know they purposely made it to look like that. They they made it look like a diseased penis. It's, that was It's Clive
1: Barker, that doesn't surprise yeah, me at all.
0: That was intentional. Um but yeah, I did not see it going that way either and I was so disappointed, especially that shot of uh Elliot Spencer laying there on the floor bleeding out from his throat just just taking his last breaths. It's just so fucking sad.
1: Okay. So is there is it just me or when he cuts his throat and he's doing that oh, oh thing Mm -hmm. like it made me kind of want to gag too (laughs) like oh (laughs) he can't breathe now i can't breathe yeah i agree that was a badass scene yeah even though it didn't didn't go the way i wanted it yeah but you know your team can't always win.
0: <laughs> so Travis, final thoughts, Hellbound Hellraiser 2.
1: Um, I don't want to tell people to watch this, but they should probably watch this. <laughs> um, if I had to choose between this one and the first one, I think I like this one better than the first one. Um, but that's just because I don't, I don't know. I didn't really get, I understand the love story angle from the first one, but that, that didn't really do it for me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, this one, the, the larger scale, you get a little more development on the all the characters really. Involved, and I like that a lot better. Um, It's if you've never. Seen a horror movie? You know what? Even if you have seen a horror movie, if you've never seen a Hellraiser movie, this is this could be a tough watch. This it's, wasn't it's...
0: Final Thoughts. This was Mary fuck, or Kill.
1: Oh, i thought you said Final Thoughts.
0: No, oh. I said Mary fuck, or Kill. Oh, okay,
1: okay. well Do I have to? Do I have to pick one?
0: Yes. <laughs> um, if you value your life, you it's won't a, kill it. I
1: think it's a fuck. Okay, but it might kill me. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is one I could I could watch. I can watch this one more often than I can watch the first one. Okay, honestly, I. I probably watch this one more often than I can watch any of the rest of them okay. except for the most recent one mm-hmm. the most recent one's badass yeah they did a great job mm-hmm. um but yeah out of the whole franchise if I was gonna pick one it would probably be this one
0: and yeah I totally understand that
1: And I know a lot of people like the third one but uh, I don't know I like I the do. I like the classic characters I adore the third you one with, you end up with new Cenobites and I just don't like the new Cenobites as much as I like these so you know
0: I'm an apologist. I don't care. I
1: know. (laughs) How about you?
0: <laughs> um, it's a Mary for me, mostly because for me, one film does not exist without the other. I almost never watch one of these exclusively.
1: And I can vouch for that.
0: Yeah, I almost every single time watch these first two films back to back, like one continuous film, every single time without fail. Um, so in that regard, I see it as one giant film. So it it's going to share a Mary for me. Just because I find those two inter- intertwined with each well, you, other.
1: You treat this a lot like the original Star Wars trilogy. Like <laughs> If you watch one, you're going to watch all three. If you've got the time.
0: <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, th- yeah, I there, it's one single film to me, so I watch them both together every single time. Therefore, it's a merry. they it's my favorite film. Okay. So, I think you pretty well gave us your I final have thoughts. I already
1: said my final <laughs> thoughts.
0: <laughs> you've said your piece, sir. Um again, I understand that body horror is not everyone's cup of tea. However, I will say that I don't necessarily consider part Two to necessarily be as much on that body horror scale as the first one. It definitely, like I said, feels more of a fantasy film. So if you kind of like stuff in that arena, I would say give it a watch. Um, it's another one that's not for delicate sensibilities. It's it explores things that your typical slasher isn't going to. It makes you uncomfortable, um, makes you feel really dirty. Um, so it's it's not for everyone. But I will still say give it a watch for sure. Especially if you're a fan of the original, but for some reason haven't seen the second one. Give it a try for sure.
1: All right. Well, normally we would talk about what we're going to do next week, (laughs) but we're not doing shit next week.
0: No, this is our, uh, like I said, our season finale. So I'm going to let Travis tell you a story right quick while I pull up our viewer question of the month because we are also foregoing Pillow Talk this month. Um, so why, why don't you go ahead and tell what, the folks at home <clears throat> what our wonderful, wonderful friends in Pennsylvania did for us.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so Bill and Zena Rush were at a con. I don't remember the name of the con. Do you? No. But they were there and Mr. Bradley happened to be there. I don't feel like I could call him by his first name. It'd be weird, right? It'd be like calling your dad by his first name. You mm-hmm. just don't do that. So Mr. Bradley was there and they got to meet him. And they had a it's a it's a figurine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, still in the box, and they'd ask him to sign it for a friend mm-hmm. that had lost their daughter. And uh, I guess they gave they kind of told him about it about what had happened with London. And he signed it and gave them their money back. and then and said
0: donate it to an anti-bullying cause. Yeah.
1: And then I guess gave them a hug and said, that it was for us mm-hmm. and I don't. He, he got emotional about it apparently and uh, I just I don't know that's completely unexpected
0: yeah so you don't ever expect that I mean on on two on two different pages here you don't expect people that you've literally only met one time to go as above and beyond as Bill and Zina have in thinking of us in such a way that they wanted to do something this special for or London, let alone us, you know, and it, they never even got the opportunity to meet her. So that alone is something right there that I am, it's it's not something I'm ever going to forget. It, it's probably the grandest gesture that has ever been done for me in my entire life. Um, so there's that. Um, and then it's not very often that you have your quote unquote horror hero not only acknowledge, you but care about you in that way where it would be so easy to just write someone off and be like, yeah, yeah, let me sign your thing and be on your way. I've got 300 more people to see in 30 minutes like a lot of people do, you know? We've all heard the horror stories about how some people are just there to make their buck and move on and don't care about their fans at all. But for him to show such an act of kindness for someone that he's never met, that is just absolutely fucking mind boggling to me. And yes, he was like my kind of horror idol before, but now I know that he is also an incredible just human being in general. And it's meant so much to me and it has such a special place in my heart now that he went also went up to 11,000. <laughs> 11, <000. laughs> like, I just, I can't, I can't express the amount of love that I have felt in my heart for those those three individuals you know anything you want to add to that
1: no you you covered it (laughs) I think it's amazing
0: oh we love you so much Bill and Xena you are I mean Travis is like I don't have any friends I don't have any I don't need any (laughs) friends but you guys really are truly the best best friends we've ever had and we'll never forget this so thank you um okay moving on from the touchy feelies. that's enough of that gooey shit Again, we are foregoing Pillow Talk this month, and we are going to answer our one lone question we got. And as always, without fail, it is from our friend Karima. And this is more of a question for me this time. Oh, thank God. (laughs) So, she says, do you think your medical skills and natural interest ties into the ability to watch this type of horror? I think she means horror in general. Um... I think it's actually flipped the opposite way. Um, I don't know that my love of, um, how do I, I'm, I'm having a hard time trying to articulate this. Um, when I first decided that I was going to start this career, I did have some of my friends go, well, this, you get to deal with blood for a living. This is perfect for you. Um, so I don't know that my love of horror made me more interested in what I do. I think my love of horror helped me to seek this out, maybe. So kind of like an opposite reaction, almost, where I was going, because I wasn't aware that there was a name for this job. You just always thought your nurse came in and drew your blood or whatever. Um, So I I didn't know that phlebotomy, I didn't didn't know that was a title. I didn't know it was a name. So whenever I was kind of going, all right, I don't want just another dead-end job. I want a career. I want something... Where I feel like I'm making a difference and I'm doing something important, you know, that affects people. Um, I was going through medical because I kind of knew that was the arena I wanted to venture in because I also, at my heart, love science. Um, And I think women in STEM is in a very, very important thing, and I'm I'm glad to be a part of that in any way that I can. So when it first came up, I was like, "What the hell is a phlebotomist?" and I don't remember if it was you or Aiden that was like well that's a person that that draws blood and I was like say that sounds pretty interesting next thing I know you know a year ago I was going to school actually it's been over a year now I had my anniversary um and doing what I do now I had no idea that it was going to be so much more involved than just drawing blood I'm responsible for so much more than that um what we do literally can save lives I don't think we get enough credit for that um but I would say that my love of horror definitely didn't hurt it because I am also getting specimens all the time of a gory nature that for instance the scene at the beginning where shenard is doing open brain surgery on uh on a patient there is one nurse in the background who is kind of looking like she's about to lose her lunch and kind of afraid a little bit and I told Travis, I was like, "Shit! If it was me, I'd like have my head right over her shoulder, like, eh, wicked," <laughs> you know. Um, you know, I'm used to getting hand handed stomachs and toes and eyes and <laughs> colons and all kinds of crazy shit. So um I definitely have a pretty strong stomach and probably, yeah, horror helped with that quite a bit. So I hope that answers your question. I think that's what you are asking. So <laughs> but um yes, normally we would talk about what we're doing next week, but we are not going to be here next week. Um we were breaking for the holidays, obviously. Um it's Already kind of been a rough time for us the last couple of months. And I suspect that this month is going to be even worse. So I think it's it's a good idea for us to kind of take a break and be together as a family for a little bit. Um that being said, our breaks are never long. They're usually two months. So we will be back in February. And, and yeah, we can already tell you what we're covering. Um, we did it our first year, I think, or maybe it was the beginning of the second year. I can't remember. But we did what we called sexy month for february and we're going to do that again so when we come back in february look forward to us covering francis ford coppola's dracula and i am so fucking excited because yes i live and breathe gary oldman in that role so
1: he actually took (laughs) that after telling doug bradley that he was jealous of him being hellraiser yes
0: yes and said that he
1: want he wanted to be in a horror film yeah so when the opportunity to do dracula came up he took it
0: yeah Yeah, I forgot about that. I'm glad you remembered.
1: I remember things.
0: sometimes but anyway as always thank you guys for the last few months of listening to our banter and um, sticking in with us and we'll see you in February take care guys bye thank you for listening to another episode of Dead and Married a very special thank you to our patrons William and Zena Rush of Original Cinematic Gary Horton Carissa Kate Lamp Karima Rhodes Kent Morton Lala Thomas and Renee Hunter Vasquez John Paul Vasquez and Travis Hunter of Podmortem if you would like to support the show go to patreon.com slash dead and married to find out how another special thank you to alana miller for composing dead and married's theme you can find alana's channel alana llama on youtube check us out on x and instagram as spookymom 83 and travis l respectively as well as our official pages please consider rating and reviewing and thank you again for your support